I love a beautifully set table. It's a big deal for me. Uh, dinner tables are, 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 are a special place for me. It's where I get to see people eye to eye. It's where we get to slow down after the chaos of our days. Uh, I have a handful of very meaningful, magical experiences around tables that have been frozen into my mind and etched into my brain. I remember <clears throat> a big fondue meal with friends celebrating a, a birthday where I looked at my watch and realized I had been there for three and a half hours, just cracking up the entire time with them. I remember a swanky meal at a, a specific farm in Nyack to celebrate a wedding anniversary of me and my wife after 15 years, or, or a, a spread of metzes and hummus and tabbouleh, and we were in a cave at the side of a hill in Bethlehem. Or a smoky bry, that's what they call a barbecue in South Africa on the side of the Indian Ocean. These are meals that have been meaningful to me. And a great meal, and you know this, a great meal can be a sensual experience. My wife Amanda says it's one of her pathways of worship is eating. She loves it. Right? The way that it looks, the way that it smells, its textures, it's, it's of course the tastes. Even the sounds of the environment can add or take away from a really good meal. But I love the table. And so about six years ago, my wife and I finally actually bought our first real piece of furniture that we didn't have to assemble on our own. It was a big, beautiful wooden uh, dining room table. And it brings me so much joy. If you know our family, I will tell you in non-COVID times, five out of maybe six out of the seven days of the week, we have not just our big family around that table, but often neighbors and colleagues and friends and family. The table for us it carries some weight. It carries some significance. It's packed with emotion and life. It's the table where I sat down with my wife Amanda's parents when she was 18 years old and asked them for her hand in marriage. 18. They looked at me. They were like, we will not have a teenage bride. And I said, okay. And then five days after she turned 20, we got married. I wouldn't suggest it for everyone. It's worked with us. Uh, it, it was the table three years later, that same table where we looked at Amanda's parents and told them that they were going to be grandparents, and they were like, ah, this will be okay. This will be, I'm like, that's not the response you want, but yes. <laughs> it's the table where relationships are forged. It's the table that people will walk away from somebody upset at your stupid uncle and his political takes over the next few weeks. But it's why families who sit at the table more regularly together, statistically, will be more emotionally healthy, have better grades, do better in their vocation, vocational domains, have, have healthier choices in life. The implications at the table, they matter. And this is a big deal for us in New York because half of us in this room don't have tables, right? And the other half don't like to share them because life is so chaotic that the last thing on our radar is actually inviting other people into our private space. I get it. But the table has been central to the story of God and the life of the church throughout history. They, they, they called it throughout Scripture, coming to the Lord's table. It's referred to that in the book of Acts. It was the focal point for the first Christians. They didn't want to miss it. In many churches that you potentially grew up in, you would do something called communion maybe once a month. For others, you did it every week within the Catholic Church, right? You did it every, maybe multiple times a week, and it became very traditional, lost a lot of its meaning. It's that kind of awkward moment where you're like, am I supposed to take the cup and drink it by myself? Am I supposed to dip it? What am I going to do? Am I going to get in trouble? Like, we all have some level of experience with this weird religious tradition. 
that we refer to at times as the Lord's table. But when the first Christians gathered, any time they got together, they were celebrating this thing called the Lord's Supper. Because at the, the table, the focus was completely and utterly about this man, Jesus. This is where the church would come to experience the presence of Christ. It's where they would look into other people's eyes who were coming from different cultures and contexts knowing that those other people had serious baggage, honest about the baggage they had themselves, and would look at each other and remind one another in the midst of their brokenness that they were more sinful than we had ever thought, but more loved than we could have ever imagined. And sure, we, we, we come to services like this, too, to, to worship and meet Christ, but, but you know how this goes. So many of you today and I will walk out of this place and we'll go, yeah, me macho was a little loud. <laughs> or yeah, like Dan, it was all right. That turkey was okay. Like there's so many other things that can take our attention away from the, the center point of this thing and the center point of the table, which was Jesus. And so the table became the centering practice for the church. The, the sacrament of communion became the centering practice of the church that meant something deep. The scripture, God's own story, is actually bookended by different meals carrying this level of significance. The book of Genesis, the book of Genesis actually means origins, begins with a meal around a tree, a piece of fruit. The end of the Bible ends with a great banquet feast and something that the scripture calls a new creation. And Jesus, last night in the world, was shared around a table. He and his disciples, they gathered around this table celebrating something called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread or Passover. And they're remembering in this process at tables, lounging around, that they are a blessed people who had often been broken by slavery, who had in seasons been broken by their own sin. But through God, this blessed and broken people are put in a position to actually give their lives away for the sake of other people groups around the world. That's what happens around the table. And so the scripture says during this meal, Jesus takes some bread in his hands. He blesses the bread. He breaks the bread. And then he gives it to his disciples. And he says, take this and eat. This is my body. Now, this is actually a pattern that we see in the story of Christ again and again. Anytime Jesus takes bread, what does he do with it? Here's what he does. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it. And this is not just a micro kind of scene of every time he's got bread in his hands. This is actually the, the meta narrative of the entire, you can't say meta anymore without thinking through what's about to, yeah. But this is the overarching narrative of the scripture, right? Well, this, this, this movement of, of blessed to broken to given is something we see again and again. And so what does blessed mean? Right, we use the hashtag, right? Hashtag blessed, which is superficial. Like we, right? It's superficial. We use it like when we get something or something good happens to us, we hashtag blessed. Like that's, and I say it's superficial because we use that when we get something or when something good happens to us, and we're just not thinking through things theologically. Because what does it mean for people that don't get good things? Does it really mean that God's not with them? I don't think so, not if we actually look at Jesus as the exact representation of God. 
And so there's this superficiality that we know when it comes to the word blessed, but not in the scripture. The type of blessing that's actually described in the scripture is much deeper. It transcends circumstances and has to do with who we are and how we are made. And to understand this kind of blessing, we need somebody else to tell us our story. And so yesterday, I was talking with Stephanie about it, but yesterday was my son Judah's six-year-old birthday. Right? And, and every year on my children's birthdays, we tell them their origin story. It's something they can't know themselves. Right? They can't know their origin story themselves. Somebody else has to speak that into them. And so we tell them about where we lived and how we were feeling and what time of day and any type of drama that got them to where they are now. And we talk about all the people that came to visit them at the hospital. We look back on photos. And now, every single year, every one of my kids asks this question. Tell us, tell us what we were like. They want to know their origin story. And our origin story in the church is a story of blessing, right? Our our Judeo-Christian origin story is actually very set apart from every other origin story of its time. For people in ancient times, the question was never, did God make this and how, but rather, which God made this and why? The religious traditions of this time were that man was made to serve the gods so that the gods didn't have to work as hard. Sometimes the men were made accidentally, but the origin story that's found in Genesis 1, it's very different. First, Genesis actually reveals that there's only one God, and that that one God had you in mind and makes you and blesses you and calls you good. And so there's relationship, and there's blessing, and there's enjoyment, and there's careful, methodical, joyful process at play, and you are lovely simply because God loves you. That's it. This means you're good and beautiful. Even when you're not feeling it. It means you're good and beautiful even when other people say you're not. Many scholars believe the book of Genesis was written to the nation of Israel as they were coming out of their Babylonian captivity. The author is reminding them that you do not let the mess that you are in define you. That there is one God who made you, who loves you, who sees you, and who will always bring order out of chaos. But this isn't how the city works. The city and even religious institutions often have you understand our origin story as one that begins with the messes that we are. They start with Genesis 3 and Genesis 2 and talk about the amount of sin we have. The rhythms of the city tell us that we're not enough, that we need more power, that we need to be more significant, more successful, that we need to be more attractive. You hop on the 7 train or the F train or the Q, and within the first three trains you're on, you will be told through advertisement that you should be ordering seamless every single night, that you should be sleeping with some extravagant magical sheets that you don't have at night, and that you should be going to the sex museum. Like, there, you, like within the first few minutes on a train, like these are the things that are being conveyed to us. That others have it better than you. And that you should want better too. That if you don't have better, that there's something actually wrong with you. And so the systems of the city, they try to name us, but this isn't the God of Genesis. This is actually the God of Mammon. The God of money. Or the God of Mars. The God of power. 
In essence, the, the systems of the city, they have us start with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. But the Christian God, seen in Jesus himself, says, do not forget as you walk these streets, Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. Our salvation is not something that can be achieved by ourselves. We cannot bless ourselves. It's an act conferred upon us. Now, bread, so simply bread, mundane bread, even macho sourdough, it is a, it is a simple staple of sustenance. Every time Jesus took the bread, he blessed it. He would turn it into something more but also return it to what God had originally made it to be. The gratitude that Jesus expresses for the bread is so grounding. And this is why we take communion together. It is this sacramental view that the sacred is right here in this room. We just have to engage it and actually see it that way. It's good and holy because it was and is blessed by God. The ordinary bread, the ordinary wine, the ordinary vacas and the ordinary dean, they're good. And Jesus loves them. And they're lovely simply because Jesus loves them. Bread doesn't need to be something different than bread to be a sign of God's presence. That's precisely what bread was made to be. And bread doesn't need to be transformed into something else to be a means of God's presence. That's what bread and wine and the whole earth itself was made to be, a carrier of God's glory as are you. So, a few questions. Who's naming you right now? Who's naming you right now? Is it the images of the city? Is it your boss? Is it your spouse? Or are you going to the one who made you and loves you? What do you think about the ordinary? Are you rehearsing our origin story? This is why we gather as a church. We rehearse our blessedness. We don't do this at home or from a podcast, but instead we do this face-to-face, seeing the people around us, rehearsing again and again. And Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, and then he breaks it. So think about who you're sitting next to right now. And, and think about who Jesus was sitting next to at the table that night. Judas. Judas is there. Jesus breaks the bread in the presence of Judas. Yahweh, the king of the cosmos, takes on skin, comes into the world as Jesus, and he attaches himself through the deep act of hospitality and to Judas, the betrayer. I want you to see this. This is a prophetic move. As he breaks the bread, he is saying, we are connected. My body is going to be broken because of your brokenness, Judas. But here's what's so unique about Jesus. Jesus is able to hold both Judas' brokenness and Judas' blessedness in his hands at the same time. This is a big deal. In our polarized culture, we are so quick to jump on the public shaming and the casting out of people that we forget the blessedness of the people whose brokenness has been exposed to us. And honestly, we forget about the blessedness and the brokenness in ourselves as well. As we deal with our shame and our guilt and our sin, we forget about the blessedness in us. 
And so what happens is the world says, hey, you're going to either remember your blessedness or you're going to remember your brokenness, either or. And, and because of that, you're going to look at people and you're going to see their blessedness or their brokenness, either or. But if you are actually trying to follow the way of Jesus, you will continue to learn what it means to hold both our blessedness and brokenness in our hands and contentment so that we can also see the blessedness and brokenness of our neighbors in a way where we can truly love them. Now, my, my kids, my kids know the trick here. When, when bread is actually broken, that's when it gets good. It's then that it's ready to soak up the sauce, the olive oil, the butter, the curry, all that stuff that's good. My kids insist on it. I always try and do the, 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 the quick fix of like butter on the top, and here you go. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like you break that thing open, and you make sure that it, it, it seeps into all of it. And this, this, is, this is the gospel, right? That, that, that the grace of God is, is only good in seeping through the things that acknowledge the brokenness of our lives. The necessity of experiencing the grace of God is actually acknowledging that you need the grace of God. It's why the Apostle Paul said, my grace is, is all you need. My power works best in my weakness. So now, he says, I'm glad to boast about my weakness, my brokenness, so that the power of Christ can work through me. There's beauty in, in holding both our blessedness and brokenness together. And so how are you able to be honest about your brokenness? Are you? Are you able to be honest about your brokenness? Some of you in here, you're like, I, my, I'm, I'm just awesome. And it's like, no, you're not. And some of you in here are like, I'm horrid. And it's like, no, you're not. You are made in the image of God. And you have flaws and you have failures and you stop short and settle for less. But Jesus has the capacity to hold both of those in his hands and still look at you and love you. Blessed, broken, given. So let me just end with this story. When, when the kids were small, probably about that size actually, when most of my children were small, and some of you are visiting, I have six kids. Um, one of the things that we would do uh, one of the things, honestly, we still do, and Markeisha now is 18, and we still do this. Um, we, we hold some regular, consistent dance parties in our living room where we will throw on anything from dead mouse techno music to MC Hammer to the Macarena. I mean, like, we go all in. It's whatever, whatever we feel like that night. And Amanda and I, if, if we're not dancing as well, we'll sit back, and we just delight in our kids. We just laugh at them, especially the white ones, because they're so bad at dancing. It's just a stereotype to the nth degree is there. I don't know what it is. It just is. And we just laugh, and we smile, and we accept, and we give them a big hug before bed. We look at them in their face. We use their name, and we tell them they're loved. And throughout the years, it has become uh, uh, this moment of blessing and unconditional love and very conditional parenting times for me. Like, if I'm honest, this is where I'm, I'm, I'm rough as a parent, is I'm very conditional. Like, if my kids are, are behaving well, if they're bringing some value to the family, I'm all for them, I'm cheering them on. When they're not, I struggle with it. And so in the midst of my conditional parenting, these dance parties have become this moment of unconditional love where regardless of what teacher has emailed or whether or not they've followed through on the things that they were supposed to do in our apartment that day, I just rejoice in them. And my prayer is that somehow that phrase, you, you, you are lovely simply because I love you, gets across to them. 
And this is what happened prior to Jesus' ministry. Before he had healed, before he had turned water to wine, before he ever raised the dead, he's baptized by his cousin John. And as he stands in the water, the father's voice sings out over him and says, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the blessing of Yahweh poured out upon Jesus. And it is in this confidence that he now stands at this table on this last night of his life in this world with his friends, breaks the bread, holding both the brokenness and the blessedness of his students together, and says, when you gather, eat this, remember me. My body has been broken for you. My blood poured out so that the sins of the world are forgiven. Within the next 48 hours, God in the flesh in this story, will submit his power to the broken hands of humanity. He will die a death by crucifixion, most likely dying of asphyxiation as human lungs. God's human lungs would fill up. He gives his life away. And he does it for the world, right? He does it for Palestinians and Jews. He does it for Republicans and Democrats. He does it for those that like bike lanes and those that don't like bike lanes. He does it for those that have paperwork and those that don't. For the light skin and dark skin, for all who are lovely because he simply loves them. He, he blesses us. He breaks his body for us. And he gives his life away. And this is what the church is supposed to do. We are supposed to rehearse our blessing, be able to stand in confidence, going, I am loved by the creator of the world. There is nothing, nothing that I can do that's bad enough to lose the love of God, nothing that's good enough to earn it. It is all conferred upon me because of who God is in Jesus. We're to rehearse that when we take communion together. To be honest about our brokenness, as we take the bread and the cup, we look at people knowing not only are they flawed, I am seriously flawed, and we're going to take this together, remembering that we can hold both the blessedness and brokenness of each other in our hands because this is what Jesus does for us. And we do this because when we do this regularly, out of a deep gratitude and thankfulness, we walk out into the world extending God's love to the city of New York and beyond.